I think we'd be hard pressed to think of anything in the Christian life that um, that is more connected with the idea of of enjoying fellowship in the presence of God, like praying. We could argue worship, and in some ways, I would I would connect worship and prayer together. Uh, worship is interacting with God in a way where we're elevating and exalting Him. Worship is all about Him; it's not at all about us. It's what we give Him. Uh, it's what He deserves. It's what we offer Him. You know, uh, because He is worthy. That's where the word worship comes from. Is His worth worthship. And so prayer is something by connection that is very much like that, where we come before him, uh, we are by definition acknowledging our dependence upon him. We are, uh, matter of fact, if, if you want to turn to Matthew chapter six, I think this would be a great place to, to start, uh, in regard to what is typically known as the Lord's prayer. It's probably better to think of it. Well, it's, I think we need to think of it not so much as the, a prayer the Lord prays as much as it is a prayer that the Lord taught his disciples to pray. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 7 of chapter 6 in Matthew, where Jesus says, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Uh, in other words, don't just repeat prayers like this one. Don't just say it over and over and over again. Don't um, don't speak sort of almost um, robotically to your father. And, and the reason for that, of course, is that we are invited to a relationship with him. And, and we don't, we don't talk to our friends, our spouse, our kids, you know, we don't talk repetitively to them. We might, if we're trying to maybe teach our child something, we may repeat ourselves, but, but really when we're having uh conversation and we're sharing our heart with somebody, we don't necessarily just sit there and say the same thing over and over again, but rather a relationship implies that there is communicating going on. Uh, certainly on the human level, back and forth. Uh, and I would even argue in regard to people and God, believers and God, that God does sometimes, uh, not only can, but I, I think does sometimes, uh, give us direction or answer a prayer specifically or, 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 or speak to our hearts and that kind of thing. I, I do believe that that can and does happen with the Lord because he's, has the volition to do whatever he chooses in that. And if he chooses to speak to somebody, that's, uh, that's completely his prerogative, and I think he does. Um, I, now, that said, I'll add a caveat here that I, I would certainly want to make clear, and that is that I don't think he always talks to somebody like you and I could talk to each other. I don't think that uh, – uh, I'm always surprised when I hear the way some people talk about how often they hear and how specifically they hear from the Lord. Uh, it's almost more often than even like Paul did, and, and uh, you know, it's it's uh, uh, it's a little disconcerting when you hear that kind of thing because – uh, really, God has spoken to us in his word, and that's the primary place where we know that we can hear from God. Um, but again, I do believe he can speak to us uh, very personally about specific things we might be praying about, uh, or if we ask him for direction on something. I don't think there's anything withholding him from doing that. I think he does. Um, but we want to be careful that we don't just sort of ascribe everything. Just because we thought it doesn't mean Jesus said it. And so we want to make sure we're also that caveat. But again, the idea of how we go about praying, we don't just repeat ourselves over and over like the heathen do. They have this sort of systematic approach to just saying things a certain number of times, uh, that, and, and that becomes their version of what they're calling prayer. But Jesus sort of says, no, that's not really how you do that. 
Uh, matter of fact, that's the heathen do that kind of thing. But rather instead, uh, he says, verse 8, don't be like them. For your Father in heaven knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray. And so now he gives what is called, what is typically seen as a model for prayer. Again, he just said, don't just repeat yourself over and over. So he's not saying repeat this prayer necessarily word for word. It's not wrong if you do that. But if you just sort of repeat the prayer over and over again, that's not really praying. That's actually wrong. And Jesus just made that point. But he does throw out here for his disciples um, a number of things that are good to include when you do pray, when you come before the Lord to pray in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The idea of worshiping, beginning by recognizing and even acknowledging who you're talking to. You are uh, my father in heaven. First off, you're in heaven, right? You are high and lifted up. You are lofty. Your uh, your glory and the train of your robe fill the temple in heaven. And just it's, it's overwhelming and the smoke fills and just you're awesome and you are lofty even in just where you are seated. Father, wow. Um, that is kind of a staggering concept. Um, God is every bit as and beyond anything we could even imagine as far as his holiness and gloriousness, his loftiness, uh, his uh, the fact that we could never approach him if not for the invitation and that being through the finished work of Christ. Uh, he is holy beyond our finding out. We could never imagine dwelling in his presence, just sort of casually walking in and just talking to him like a buddy kind of a thing. Uh, Isaiah f- fell on his face as dead when he saw this vision of the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah 6. And so to think that we can also, and Jesus invites us to call him father, is a privilege of the highest order. Um, that we could call the creator of heaven and earth and our creator, uh, the one who is past or finding out unless he reveal himself to us. He invites us to call him father. It's a very wonderfully warm, uh, inviting term. He's not only this awe-inspiring creator of all things, but he's also father to us. This is something that the Old Testament believers would have had no real idea of at all. Uh, some knew the beauty of drawing close to him. David, Moses could spend, uh, could, could be up on the mountain with him. But, um, but it was never casual. It was loving and, and beautiful. But it was always with the understanding of who it was that, uh, um, that we have this privilege of, of drawing near to God that way. So our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, worship, elevation of your name. May it be seen as holy and separate and other. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our desire for him to establish righteousness on the earth, we see he'll do that. We read about it when Jesus returns and Revelation 19 establishes his kingdom in in Revelation 20. Um, Let your kingdom come here to earth. Let your will be done. On earth, as it is in heaven, let everything on earth be done as it would be done in heaven. That is a radical thing to pray. Change everything so that it looks more like heaven here on earth. Let, let us all be obedient to you, like even the angels are in heaven. Let let business down here be done as it is conducted up there. It's it's uh, in your high and lofty place. 
Uh, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. By the way, this is a central feature of prayer. Uh, and this is something I wanted to make sure I get to. He goes on to talk about uh, God giving us our daily needs, our daily bread, a very practical prayer, teaching us to forgive others as we've been forgiven, to lead us not into temptation, uh, but to deliver us from the evil one. And again, this worship at the end, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. This idea of your kingdom come and your will being done here on earth as it is in heaven, the idea of humble submission to that which God desires to do. Um, even though it may not line up with what I want, I'm not praying for my will to be done in heaven. I'm asking for his will to be done here on earth. Uh, even when I pray for my will, like, Lord, this is what I think ought to be done. Nevertheless, as Jesus himself modeled in the garden uh, twice, as we read about it in Matthew, is it Matthew where it's twice or Mark where it's twice? But it's, you know, not my will, but yours be done. Let this cup pass by me. And so, um, so therefore, there is this understanding that there is a humble submission to that which God desires to do that is at the heart of prayer. Lord, have your way. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about prayer today, sort of springboarding from that. Um, there is, uh, and, and I'm going to apologize-ish, I mean, not really apologize so much, but I... I just, I want to make sure you understand where my heart is at when I talk about these things. Prayer is one of those things that can be a really touchy thing to talk about or to critique. Um, not your personal prayers critiquing, but um, the subject of prayer and certain practices that have arisen over the last um, years that um, uh, that take a very different tack on how to pray. Uh, how to pray specifically for certain things, um, the posture that we come to God in prayer with, um, what prayer even is and what it's intended to accomplish, questions like can we persuade or change God's mind about things or not, um, you know, can we um, change the mind of God in regard to what he should or shouldn't do, um, our motivation behind thinking that we can uh, is something to consider and to think deeply about. These are things that um, I, I would I would suggest that what traditionally has been understood in a far more biblical way, consistently biblical way, has in modern times been rethought in such a way as to kind of distort much about this idea of prayer. Uh, I'm going to talk about a f- couple of specific movements that really uh, are are one and then one that was sort of an offshoot of it. Uh, and I'm going to mention a couple of names, and again, my intention is not to sound critical per se, um, but at the same time, for the same reason that prayer is a difficult one to critique because it's so personal to so many, it is because it is God's invitation to us to fellowship with him uh, personally and closely that it is worth examining practices that have cropped up over the last little while as to whether or not they line up scripturally or if they should maybe be set aside because they actually aren't biblical. Um, so I'm going to talk about a couple of things. I'm not going to, I'm actually going to start with the offshoot. Um, that was actually, this, this was actually a, uh, a topic and a specific topic that I was asked if I would address, uh, by one of our, uh, our, our dear sisters at church. And it's got a name and it's called Freedom Prayer. Uh, some of you may be familiar with Andy Reese, uh, 
uh, and uh, I, his co-author escapes me at the moment. No, actually, hold on a second. It's uh, yeah, Jennifer Barnett. Yeah, it's Andy Reese and Jennifer Barnett. I meant to put her name on here as well. I apologize and mean to miss her name on there, but um, but they wrote uh, they they speak frequently and have written a bit on the subject of what's called freedom prayer. And they have a book called Freedom Tools that helps sort of establish freedom prayer ministries and churches. Uh, and they speak to this quite a bit. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and this approach to, uh, this freedom prayer is actually, is a, a means by which people might experience inner healing, even deliverance, uh, from, uh, various, you know, practices, demonic things, um, um, Things that have, have sort of enshackled them, even from maybe childhood and even prenatal in some cases, um, uh, you know, to be sort of freed from um, the bondages that these things have brought. And they have, again, spoken pretty prolifically, written about it as well. Um, and uh, so I went ahead and I have to admit, I was not as familiar with this as I was with that which this was birthed from. Um, and I'll speak to that in just a moment. But um but this idea of freedom prayer uh, is presented by Andy Reese. I watched a number of his videos, including his introduction to this, uh, which is about an hour, a little over an hour long, and uh, and a number of other videos where he speaks to this. Uh, some vignettes, as he called them, others just uh, brief little explanations of various things, other longer teachings, uh, and that kind of thing. And I've also uh, read through his book. And so... Um, uh, so I'm more familiar with it now. And, uh, and I would I guess I would start by saying that when Andy introduces freedom prayer, uh, and, and I guess I'll, let me actually back up just one second. I in no way doubt the sincerity of, of Andy Reese and his desire to help people. I don't think that he is trying to take advantage of anybody. I don't think he's trying to, um, take money from people necessarily. I mean, he sells his books, but there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I don't think there's uh, ill intention. I don't think that he is uh, uh, got a mean bone in his body from everything I've heard him talk about. He seems like a very sweet person and with a very deep desire to help people. However, I, I do have some uh, concerns about the ideas that he is sharing in his writing and in his speaking and, and, and Jeanette uh, Barnett, uh, uh, Jennifer Barnett as well uh, in, in connection with that and in, in agreement with these things. Uh, let me talk a little bit about what it is and then where it comes from and what it's connected to. And, and, and before long, you'll probably begin to understand a little more where I'm coming from on this. Freedom prayer again is, is a means by which, um, uh, one might overcome the bondages that have, uh, been formed because of various experiences, uh, or even demonic activity that may, um, that may have arisen in, in a person's life. Um, it is very intimately connected with uh, a, a movement known as inner healing, which is something that goes back quite some ways, actually. Uh, Agnes Sanford is considered sort of the mother of, of this inner healing movement. Uh, there is uh, um, uh, that movement continues today being under the leadership of other people or prominent people in that movement. And the idea of inner healing, again, speaks to those ideas of getting to the heart of why someone may be in bondage to something. They may not be as free in Christ as as he would have them be. And so, therefore, there is a systematized approach to helping people uh, through various um, 
scripture uh, references, readings, uh, uh, prayer techniques, and even a pretty fair amount of psychological um, technique in that to help people move from where they are to where they can be free. Now, I'm paraphrasing a bit. I mean, you'd read the book to really see that more elaborated on. Um, but I think that's a fair explanation, uh, from, from again, all that I've watched and what I've listened to. And, and, and this is where I was going to start just a second ago. Um, Andy, in, in speaking in the introduction to, um, to Freedom Prayer, speaks about how this is much more about Christ than a technique. It's much more about Him than it is about a systematized approach or a methodology, I think is how he puts it. Um, but I would say, though, though that is the stated uh, intention uh, right from early on in the outset of the discussion or the the the, the um, um, his his speaking on it, it becomes evident very, very quickly that this actually very much is about a methodology. It is about a an approach to delivering somebody from these things, uh, providing inner healing through a series of things there is a number of doorways that are approached as as being potentially uh the means through which the devil the enemy or not necessarily satan himself but you know in the um you know the principalities and powers that that really are part of his spirit of the age have entered into a person's life and have created a bondage that needs to be broken as a matter of fact um uh, Neil T. Anderson, uh, is, uh, uh, writes the foreword to the book on freedom tools. And Neil Anderson is a big proponent of the idea of, uh, of breaking bondages and that kind of thing. There's, uh, an entire segment of the body of Christ that is very much into this kind of thing. And in some ways that would be seemingly strange to many who would, would, would see or hear or read about some of these ideas. Um, however, I would suggest that Fewer and fewer people are finding this to be strange or odd, but it's becoming far more embraced in the days to come. And in particular, there's a movement that I think is more responsible for this than any other in in the modern times. And we'll talk about them in just a moment. But the idea here of freedom prayer, again, speaks to being set free through a methodology, through various approaches, information and, uh, and the right and scripture and prayer and, and also again, some other psychological kinds of additions to this, um, that provide for inner healing. Now, there are some, some practices in inner healing uh, that uh, that are common in that movement of inner healing, uh, one of which is particularly disturbing, and it's where an image of Jesus is visualized in the mind of the one who is seeking inner healing, and you are then uh, encouraged to have a conversation with that image of Jesus in your mind. Uh, this is connected with various ideas of why we might, uh, to, to help overcome some of the difficulties we might have in our relationship with God. Uh, as Andy Reese puts it, if we had a uh, very stern father figure, then we may struggle with Father God. If we had a, uh, a warped or troubled uh, relationship with our mother, then our relationship with the Holy Spirit is likely going to be sort of iffy, and we need to work on that. If we had siblings that uh, we had really bad relationship with, then maybe our relationship with Jesus as a result of that would be would be challenged. And so it becomes a means of how do we overcome those things in order to reestablish a right relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, I would say at this point, that's a favorable goal, right? I mean, if there is some reason, and I know people, that really do view God through the lens of their parental relationships if they weren't good. 
um, uh, if they were strained or even abusive. This becomes uh, sort of a a a, um, a dark lens through which to view our Father in heaven. And so I would not dispute that there is sometimes work to be done to help people recognize that God is not like your heavenly father who was abusive or your mother who was abusive or your siblings who are abusive. Uh, and I would also suggest in concert with that, that the long drawn out methodologies of some of these practices that again, people like uh, Andy Reese and um, and others that will mention um, um, or, you know, like the Sanfords um, um, later on, uh, earlier on, I should say, um, would put forth as the means by which people can be um, delivered. I think that the Bible speaks to this much more plainly and straightforwardly and uh, and even invites us to exercise our volition to respond in such a way as to move into that place of right relationship with God, which then allows us to forgive others with greater clarity and 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 uh, and fullness and allows us to move past some of the traumas that we uh, that we experience because now we know God in a personal way as the scriptures present him and I think that some of these methodologies tend to muddy the waters uh, quite a bit and and therefore I would argue are, are are not really the path that we should take to developing and cultivating that relationship with God again primarily through the word and in prayer these are two things that work in concert together uh, the early church, for example, arguably the healthiest time in the church's existence, um, you know, I, I'd be, probably make a pretty good case that throughout history, that was probably the purest time of the church's existence as a body of believers. And there were four main things that they practiced as a, on a regular basis from house to house. They gathered around the apostles doctrine or teaching. Today, we would call that Bible teaching uh, through um, fellowship. Uh, the idea of becoming one with members of the body. We just talked at some length about this yesterday in our Sunday teaching in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 5. But this idea of, of being in such unity together as a body. You are one body together. Fellowship being uh, the description of that relationship that is, is wonderfully close in a beautiful uh, family kind of way. Um, um, and then, uh, the breaking of bread spoke of the idea of, of sharing fellowship meals and probably also would have included the idea of communion, which speaks of fellowship. Um, but the idea of breaking bread and also celebrating the Lord's supper. And then lastly, prayer, not lastly, in terms of importance, these are all important together, but these four things, uh, the teaching, uh, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers, these four things comprised the daily practice of the church and they were healthy and they were pure. Uh, when hypocrisy cropped up with Ananias and Sapphira, that was judged immediately by no less than the Holy Spirit. And uh, in harsh and very harsh fashion, there was a sense of purity and desire to walk in holiness that I think allowed the church to be very, very healthy. Um, well, what about people with, you know, real struggles uh, in those times, emotional or, you know, spiritual or mental struggles, those kinds of things? Well, uh, Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. And so it, it may be that we've come upon these kinds of problems in our day through different avenues, but the existence of these problems is, is no, is, is not a new thing to us today. It's something they would have experienced then. And when the Bible speaks to how we approach these things, it speaks authoritatively. It gives us the advice that comes from no less than God himself as far as how we are to address these things. Now this, this begins to bring in one of the challenges and concerns that I have in regard to freedom prayer. Um, 
And that is, and, and this is by Andy Reese's own admission, the idea of freedom prayer or inner healing, these are terms that we do not find in Scripture. He states that clearly himself, and, and, and I would agree. We don't see these terms in there at all. Uh, however, he then goes on to argue that the concepts that underlie them are found in Scripture. Even at some point, a couple of points, um, mentioning, or maybe it was just a couple of different videos talking about the same point, but he mentions how Jesus practiced inner healing with the multitudes. And uh, I would never have in a thousand years have thought to apply that terminology to what Jesus was doing as he ministered to the multitudes, because we oftentimes are not giving a lot of specificity as to how he was ministering to them or what he necessarily said in ministering to them, other than that he may have fed them or he may have taught, you know, the Sermon on the Mount or these various things. But in terms of um, the way inner healing is approached today, which is much more of a meeting with a group of leaders or a leader, uh, practices are brought to bear, methodologies are employed, and the end result is that someone would ultimately come to a place of uh, of being in a healthier relationship with the Lord and even with others around them. Um, we don't see the practices and methodologies that are mentioned in, in these things being practiced by Jesus necessarily. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is it is extrapolating and, and eisegeting really from the text things that are not there but are basically used to um, uh, to sort of justify the practices within the realm of inner healing. Uh, one example of, of this um, um, sort of loose approach to Scripture is when uh, a number of times um, Galatians 5.1 is mentioned about the idea of being set free from bondage. Matter of fact, we'll read the passage, Galatians 5.1. And uh, I will tell you, this is not going to be one of my shorter podcasts. Um, but here we go, Galatians 5.1. Uh, I'll read it. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Now, this passage is often quoted as sort of the uh, an underlying theme of the inner healing uh, movement or freedom prayer and such, the idea of being set free from bondage. Um, that that adopting of that text is generalizing the text far beyond what the text is actually saying. The text is in the midst of a discussion about legalism being, being brought back under bondage uh, by the circumcision or those who would seek to put back under bondage those who have been set free in Christ. Legalistic bondage. Now, I would argue that, sure, sometimes we can draw principles and say that there's a similar principle at play. But I, I do find that this, this passage finds itself buried thickly into a discussion about bondage to the law and legalism and what that brings upon us. Now, again, we could sort of connect some dots and eventually get to the idea of freedom prayer. Um, but it does sort of adopt a text that has a pretty particular context in regard to uh, being put back under the Mosaic law, not just sort of a bondage in a general sense, but a very specific bondage. But I think it is inside of that sort of uh, reading more into the text than what is necessarily there or just simply leaving aside the, the direct context of that text in order to use it as a springboard for a methodology or a, or a philosophy of ministry. Uh, and I, you see this throughout. Uh, and at this point, I'll go ahead and mention um, 
that which really gave birth to um, the freedom prayer movement and really uh, um, in, in some respects, no doubt, had a uh, an impact on Andy Reese particularly. Uh, and that is the Bethel movement, uh, the moval movement of Bill Johnson as pastor of Bethel there in in uh, in, in, uh, in Reading. And so um, this movement that encompasses a lot of things, um, healing is a, an enormous emphasis, not just inner healing, but physical healing. Um, there is a strong emphasis on modern day prophets and apostles, and even these two roles having authority over the body of Christ today, and the need to recognize uh, uh, these authority positions. As a matter of fact, it is in, in within that movement not uncommon to be asked, well, what apostle do you are you under? Uh, and, and while Bill Johnson sort of tries to put off the label of apostle, he does in fact function in the office of an apostle within that movement. He's called upon to function in that way in various gatherings and settings. There's, there's no shortage of videos of him serving in that capacity and also a prophet. He claims to be able to speak prophetically where the Lord gives him a word in a moment. Um, now he would probably, uh, I don't know that I've ever actually specifically heard him really fight off this, this idea, but I would imagine he would probably sort of bristle at being thought of being given new revelation on a scriptural level. Um, but maybe he doesn't that I don't know for sure. I would certainly argue that the things that he teaches, uh, speaking as one who has apostolic authority, it is hard to separate those ideas at that point that if he is hearing from God and speaking things that he's declaring to be truth from God, then you are essentially speaking on the level of scripture. And so um, I think that God can give a prophecy to someone today about someone personally. Uh, we see the daughters of Philip or, you know, that kind of thing. We don't know what they prophesied, but they are called prophets. So not every prophecy is necessarily on par with scripture. But I would say when you're teaching doctrine, uh, claiming to get truth from God and you are seen as one with apostolic authority, it's a little blurry to say that you're not necessarily speaking on par uh, with someone like the Apostle Paul. Now, again, that sounds audacious, but in practice, that's essentially what's going on. And I think that's worth pointing out um, because you want to be careful who you listen to uh, when it comes to these kinds of things. But Bethel in Reading and Bill Johnson in particular uh, is really kind of the modern day beginning point for freedom prayer. Um, uh, matter of fact, uh, Andy Reese himself would argue, would say that his, uh, um, much of what he is building on comes out of uh, this, what are called the Sozo, uh, ministry, uh, happenings at Bethel and Reading. And Sozo, uh, is a word that means, uh, to deliver, um, and that kind of thing too. And so, the things that that are being brought out in the freedom prayer are some of the very similar kinds of things that are being found in the sozo uh, meetings and in within the sozo meetings uh there is a belief that there are those who are highly trained within that that movement and within that particular ministry at the church who have particular prophetic gifts that can be brought to bear in regard to things like inner healing in that uh the prophetic Prayer is a big thing within that movement, and prophetic prayer is literally no less than praying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, giving truth from heaven to those who are hearing, and you can be prophesied over, uh, and all those kinds of things. And so, now, for some of you watching, this sounds crazy and outlandish, and, and I would tend to agree with you. When I've seen it in practice, um, you know, I've, I've watched 
many, 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 many videos and, and hours and hours of videos of, of these, uh, ideas in practice. And, uh, and frankly, they are, they are disconcerting. They're disheartening. Uh, they're disturbing. Uh, and, uh, and they are to be distanced from. I, I would never in a million years encourage anybody to go and to sit under any of this. Um, um, uh, uh, Todd Bentley, is it Todd Bentley or Scott Bentley? Todd Bentley, I think. Uh, another one who is well known in that movement, who speaks with um, prophetic authority and and just some of the crazy things I've just heard him say and and do in meetings and stuff. It's it's it is truly crazy, and I say that not to poke fun, but I say that because that is a stark contrast to what we see in Scripture. We don't we don't see or hear things that resemble what go on in these meetings. Uh, or even in some of Bill Johnson's teachings. I've listened to him more than I've listened to some of these other folks because he's sort of, you know, uh, he's sort of a main, uh, uh, you know, arguably the main figure in that movement right now. Um, and so I've watched and listened to more of his and read more of his stuff uh, than I have some others. Um, but I, I would just point out at this point, there is a stark difference, a major contrast between what the Bible puts forth as prayer, as an approach toward healing, those kinds of things, then what we see in, again, whether it's Bethel or I would even argue in regard to um, Andy Reese's, um, you know, freedom prayer and that kind of thing. A couple of other concerns. I mentioned the idea of kind of a loose interpretation of scripture in, in this regard. Not all of it, by the way. Um, you know, uh, I would say that there's a lot of things that he says that line up quite well with scripture, but there are uh, but that that almost becomes part of the danger of it is that you begin to let your guard down when you hear a lot of scripture quoted properly and in context. But then a lot of assumptions are made in regard to how we apply some of those or other scriptures. A lot of assumptions are made in, in the things that are said. And, and what I mean by that is, is that when Andy Reese speaks and begins to break out this idea of freedom prayer, he speaks with a, and says a lot of things that he just would would have you assume are true um he he and I'll, I'll put links to some of the videos and in particular like the intro and some of the other vignettes you can watch and get a sense of what i'm talking about here better to hear it from him directly but uh but you'll 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 recognize what i'm talking about when he does this you'll you'll hear him just make assertions um based on sort of loosely based on scripture but are just sort of taken as fact and that leads me to my next and what what is really probably my biggest um uh, one of my biggest critiques of, of this, uh, of this particular, uh, freedom prayer and even the movement in general. And that is the constant use of Jesus told me or God told me or I got this from the Lord. This is one of the major assumptions that is put forth by a lot of these folks. They, they, they believe that they have such an ear to hear what God has to say that they can just tell you something and say that God gave them that. And the basic uh, response is intended to be that you just receive that and accept that as true. Let me counsel you as a pastor and someone who, who leaves myself open to the scrutiny of the body of believers that I, that I pastor. And I, 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 on a regular basis, make sure that I assert this so that they know this. Nobody is above critique and nobody's, nobody who says God told me this, that, or the other thing ought ever to be assumed to be above scrutiny. What do you mean God told you that? What do you mean? And, 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 uh, Andy Reese would tell you and, and does say in these videos that this practice of freedom prayer was given to him by the Lord. Like this is something that Jesus gave him. 
uh, to share now with others. And so I would argue that, you know, having read the book and, and just again touched on a couple of points, I would argue that no, I don't think Jesus gave that to you. I think that you're assuming that because you had these ideas, they must be from God. And there's a big difference between God actually giving someone something and someone else who just because they thought it, God must have gave it to them. No, that's not true. That's not true. Not every thought I have is divinely inspired. As a matter of fact, I would, I would always be hesitant to say that anything that I'm saying to you would even begin to touch on divinely inspired other than if I'm reading the text of scripture itself. If I'm teaching the scripture, I'm doing my level best to, well, here we go. Here's an example. Uh, I'll, I'll come clean on something for those of you who didn't catch our service on Sunday. Um, when I teach every Sunday or on uh, any other context in which I'm teaching, I do my level best to study the text, to get into the original language, to consider context, to consider cultural context, to consider all the various things and put all the work into it that it takes to teach a text faithfully and accurately, rightly dividing the word of truth, as, as Paul would admonish Timothy. That is my charge. That is my responsibility. And so I do that week in and week out to the best of my ability. And I, I like to think that over the years I've grown better at doing that and putting the hard work into those things because just by virtue of doing them so many times, you do that. That said, and I only say, I only say that last part to make this point. On Sunday, in my notes, I had accidentally put a note in one place that I had meant to cut and paste into a different place in regard to the number of times a word was used in a particular passage. And I accidentally, mistakenly uh, said, and I'll, I'll emphasize mistakenly said, um, that this particular term was used twice in the space of a certain amount of passages. And this was a way that Paul emphasized his point about uh, about not fellowshipping with the fruitless works of darkness. Well, something, and I don't mean to sound dramatic, but I literally woke up at three o'clock this morning and that was on my mind. Something just didn't sit right. Like I, I felt like, like I, I missed something. And I certainly, sure enough, I went back and I looked into the Greek. I looked into the passage. I opened up the stuff I was reading and, and using as resource to, and it was nowhere that that statement that I just said about that word being used twice. I don't know where I got that from. And all of a sudden I realized further up in my notes, there was another term that had been used a couple of times that meant something different. Um, and I meant to emphasize that, but I accidentally, I mistakenly emphasized something. I, I, I said something wrong. There it is. I said something wrong. That was after hours and hours and hours of studying a passage. I just, through human error, accidentally, uh, got a couple of terms confused and I accidentally said something about a term that I meant to say about a different term. Now, it didn't change the meaning of what I was saying. It didn't change the emphasis. I mean, it, it, the passage wasn't taught inaccurately in terms of what it was conveying, but that particular thing was a mistake I made, okay? I would never claim that what I'm saying is from heaven, per se. I do pray that the Holy Spirit helps me. I do pray the Holy Spirit gives me, uh, you know, helps me to communicate these ideas uh, uh, in a way that accurately reflects the text and all these things and even brings application that the Holy Spirit may, in fact, very directly give someone a sense of, of, of the application for their lives. I pray for it to be a spiritual endeavor as much as it is a uh, roll up your sleeves and work hard endeavor as well. But that being said, I'm a human being. I'm capable of making an error. Um I would, I, I doubt Bill Johnson or, or Andy Reese would ever say they're above making an error. I, I wouldn't, I would never accuse them of, of having that lofty of a mindset of themselves where they can't make a mistake. But they are claiming to say, well, God gave me this. 
an entire system or an entire movement or a theology about one thing or another. Uh, that is clearly not biblical, and but yet they maintain that God gave it to them. So uh, as, a, as a person sitting in a church, uh, whether it's my the church I pastor or anyone else's, I'm careful not to say my church, but the church I pastor uh, or any other church, um, it is the responsibility of those who hear to scrutinize and critique what is being said. Uh, because if you don't, then some of these movements propagate and move on. Now, not that it's all on your shoulders, but if nobody ever pushes back and says, well, wait a minute, where did you get that from? And if at the end of the day, they can't point to scripture and give a proper exegesis of the passage, excuse me, but instead say, well, the Lord gave me that. You should leave that church. I'm not kidding. You should go to a church that opens the Bible and says, well, here's where I got that. And then they go and they show you the passage and they teach you the, you know, for comparing scripture with scripture and they build a case for that perspective and all that kind of thing. But if they say, well, the Lord gave me that. Wait a minute. How do I know the Lord gave you that? You're saying the Lord gave you that, but I don't know if the Lord gave you that. Um, you expect me just to take that at face value. You're saying that God gave it to you and you want me to trust you that he did. Well, maybe he didn't. That's that's the world that this movement moves in. Uh, you will find you don't have to go very far down the road with these methodologies to realize that this is not really rooted in Scripture very much at all. Um, there are passages that are used to sort of form a foundation for it, um, but they're not really scripturally anchored. Uh, you know, it's uh, not to be over simplistic uh, about this, but Andy Reese was exactly right when he said inner healing, freedom prayer, these are not terms found in Scripture, but they form the basis of this thing. Right, but forming the basis of is not the same thing as saying it's a scriptural practice. Now, let me have you turn to a passage with me here, and this is Second Timothy chapter 3. This is one that every Christian should have memorized, underlined, highlighted, dog-eared, uh, be able to recite on a dime. Uh, and it's, uh, chapter two, verse, uh, chapter three, verses 16 and 17 of Second Timothy, where Timothy, uh, Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness or training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete or mature, fully equipped for every good work. That's a pretty all-inclusive statement. In other words, the word of God is sufficient for all that you need to grow as a believer, to be healthy as a believer. That's why it appears right there in the four things that we mentioned in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, as the found, fundamental foundational practices of the church. These four legs of the stool were all there, and one of those was the teaching of, of God's word, the doctrine, which is, means teaching. So when we employ methodologies that are not found in Scripture and to accomplish a scriptural goal, your spiritual health and mine, we want to be very careful that we don't mistakenly um, assume that a methodology that is sort of based upon some scripture is necessarily the same thing as a scriptural practice, or for that matter, that in fact it comes from the Lord at all. We want to be careful and not just presume that because it feels like it works, that it necessarily is from God. I'm not saying that everything in the world that isn't found directly in scripture is going to be harmful for you, but I'm just saying that when we're talking about trying to accomplish a spiritual goal, healing of a relationship, a proper view of who God is, how to get to that place. Um, 
a lot of times these methodologies infringe upon your volition that God has given you to take him at his word and to move forward based on the truth that he's given. Uh, I'll say this, I'm sure, again, at least one more time, but what is needed is not more methodologies and um, um, systematized approaches to prayer, but what we need is more sound, solid, systematic Bible teaching. We need to approach Scripture uh, from a line-by-line, verse-by-verse, systematic approach. Take a book, study through it, learn that book, understand what it means, what it says, what it's, you know, what the applications can be, biblically speaking, like consistent applications based on what what is taught, and then go to the next book and do it then, then the next book, do it again. Now, that's something that we do personally, we should do, but it's also something every church, and I mean every church, I don't have any reason to hesitate in saying that. Uh, this is a, you know, we just read 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. This is Paul talking to a pastor saying, this is how you do ministry, son. Every church should do this. And when we do this, we produce healthy sheep. Healthy sheep beget healthy sheep. The, the body ministers to itself. Uh, we gather together. We pray for each other. We fellowship. We bear each other's burdens. We, we support one another. We walk hand in hand. We give and receive so that we might be healthy. Um, approaching these things from a, from a, a systematic methodological kind of an approach may seem like, well, this sounds like a, like a science. Let's go about it this way. It is oftentimes anything but. And we want to be very careful. Now, it's, it's hard to talk about this, by the way, um, without, again, talking to sort of the seedbed of where this idea, uh, really kind of was birthed out of. And that's the Bethel movement under Bill Johnson. Um, and I'll just share a few things that, um, that I have personally listened to Bill Johnson say in his teachings and his videos and, uh, in conferences he's spoken at. Not that I've been to the conference, but you'd see the recordings and you watch him teach, uh, or you read what he's written about things. Um, and I, I want to give this foundation because foundations give birth to things. They create platforms upon which other things are then built. And some of the, uh, the freedom prayer methodologies in that really are born out of a, out of a particular perspective, uh, that was, uh, that, that still is, is pretty much the reigning perspective at Bethel and, and, and within that entire movement of churches that really submit to this thinking that Bill Johnson sort of spearheads. Um, and in particular in regard to things like, uh, I think I mentioned before the Sozo ministry and that, um, this is a, an approach to ministry that again is involved in prophetic prayer, inner healing, demonic deliverance ministry, and these kinds of things. This is a, this is a, uh, these are practices that are embraced by a movement of people within the body of Christ that are known as the New Apostolic Reformation. I've already, uh, some of you already knew that's where I was heading with that, as I mentioned about apostles and that kind of thing. Um, well, that's an actual movement with a name, the New Apostolic Reformation. Um, and they believe very much in all these different ideas as being sort of evidence of God working in modern times through apostles and prophets for the body of Christ, helping to bring about the kingdom of God uh, for Jesus to eventually return to. Um, this is, uh, and there are nuances, various beliefs within that movement, but but by and large, that is essentially, excuse me, essentially what is in view. And so therefore, things like revelation from God are very, very important. Hearing from God directly. I would argue, based on the particular eisegesis or the reading into the text that is so common among all of those who are leaders in that movement, 
that the idea of revelation or hearing directly from God clearly does supersede as new revelation. It supersedes what the scriptures necessarily teach because you can't tell an apostle what the scriptures say when they say something different and say this contradicts. Um, I've, I've never seen one go on record and maybe they haven't, I just haven't heard it, but I've never heard one go on record, uh, having been critiqued by somebody within their movement, take that critique and acknowledge that maybe they didn't hear from God on that. Um, there is a very clear sense of apostolic authority within that movement. And Bill Johnson is one of those that has that. And the reason that is important is because when apostles make pronouncements about things, that becomes essentially doctrine for their hearers. And within that movement, there are some very strange ideas that are being put forth by quote-unquote apostles. In particular, again, Bill Johnson. I'll just kind of speak to him, and you can do your own research on others. Um, but Bill Johnson, in his own writing and in his own speaking, uh, has made very, very clear that he believes that God's intention is that everybody would be healed. That no one should uh, believe that God intends for them to uh, uh, have a withered hand or be blind or have a kidney that failed or something like that. And he believes very firmly that we are to ask for that. And as a matter of fact, we are to ask on the authority of the shed blood of Christ that that eye be restored, that that withered hand be opened up, that there be no... Um, that there be no hesitation uh, about believing that we not only could be healed and that God could do this, but that we will be healed and that God will do this. Uh, and we know this uh, through various practices of uh, that we know people believe this. They they take to to heart those teachings because you'll hear them pray like, you know, I'm thanking you in advance for the healing that you're bringing, or I am claiming in Jesus' name that this uh, back would be healed or that this sight would be restored, and. It goes beyond just trusting that God, nothing's too big for God. He could do this to instead expecting that that is what's going to happen. And there's no reason, no way and no reason why it shouldn't happen. Because after all, and this is the belief that Jesus did not just die for your sins, but he also died to pay for your healings. Again, that is something you can read in their materials and you can hear them talk about. Um, so what does that mean when someone isn't healed? Well, uh, it is interesting. I was listening to um, um, one of these guys, uh, uh, I forget his name now, but he's a well-known person. He's on 700 Club. He's actually, I think, one of the main guys on there. Um, um, but he was asked that question, well, what do you say to somebody who's not healed? You know, we believe that God heals everybody. Christ's blood paid for the healing and all this. And he just, and I'll, I'll, I will commend him for being very humble about it. Uh, he wouldn't go out and say what is generally the only two possible answers. But he just humbly said, I, I don't know. I don't know. And I could tell he just did not want to hurt somebody who had not experienced healing. And here's why I believe he was being careful, because he knows, just like Bill Johnson knows, just like uh, Ted White knows, just like uh, all of these guys know, just um, um, like they all are aware is that there's really only two reasons why you wouldn't be healed if everybody is supposed to be healed. One is unthinkable, and that is that God, um, you know, uh, um, you know, doesn't just doesn't want to heal you. The other is that you don't have enough faith. Clearly, it's not God 
And Bill Johnson has said this, if you're not healed, that's not God's fault. Um, that's in writing, as a matter of fact, I think, as I've heard him say it, but I think I've even heard, I've, I've read it. Um, um, but if it's not God's fault and you should be healed, then there's only one remaining possibility, and that's that it's your fault. And so therefore you don't have faith. You don't trust that God is going to heal you. Um, and they'll always say things like, Jesus always healed. Jesus healed everybody he came across. Um, nobody shouldn't be healed and that kind of thing. Um, first off, that's not true. Uh, Jesus didn't heal everybody that he came across. Um, one example that comes to mind off the top of my head is at the Pool of Bethesda. It says there's a, in John chapter 5, there's a great multi, matter of fact, let's turn to John chapter 5. You can see it for yourself. Sometimes I want to pair, I want to just sort of, you know, state it and paraphrase it or whatever for time's sake, but we'll take the extra time. We'll go ahead and read this here. We're going to look at a couple of passages actually now that we're in it. Chapter 5 of John, Jesus heals him out of the pool of Bethesda. Notice here how it reads. Uh, verse uh, 1 of chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. By the way, the fact that John says there is in Jerusalem uh, has led some to believe that the Gospel of John may have been written before 70 A.D. when that pool of Bethesda was was um, uh, was was wiped out um, under the um, under Titus. But anyway, so uh, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches or five porticos. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. How many? We don't have a number, but we know is a great multitude. Clearly more than one. Okay? The reason they're there is because they heard that an angel stirred the waters, and the first one in the pool after the angel stirred the waters would be healed. So verse 5, Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, I'm, sir, I have no man to put me in the pool. That's not what Jesus asked him. He just said, do you want to be made well? But the man thinks the only way I can be made well is if I'm put in the pool. Um, so anyway, but um, uh, but water is stirred up, and while I'm coming, another steps down before me. So Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews, therefore, said to him who was cured, uh, is, it is the Sabbath. It is is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Now, you could read the rest of the passage. Jesus healed one person out of a great multitude. There it is. Okay? He didn't heal everybody. He very specifically healed one person in the midst of a great multitude. Nobody else is questioned about their healing. Nobody else is running around excited. No one's carrying their bed, going home, carrying their bed. Um, there is no indication whatsoever from this passage that anybody other than this one man was healed. You could say, well, it doesn't say nobody else was healed. Okay. It says he was healed and it says there was a great multitude. There, there ought to be some indication that somebody else was healed there. And, but, but again, to be consistent with that theology, if Jesus healed everybody, then that pool should have been empty. There should have been everybody who was healed. But there was one. Um, does God always heal? No. Here's uh, another example. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12. This to me is one of the most important passages on the subject that you and I could ever read. Wow, what's it all about, Bri? Glad you asked. Second Corinthians 12. Starting in verse 7. 
And last time, and, and Paul, by the way, has just uh, shared what is um, uh, a recounting of his experience having died and gone to the third heaven. He refers to himself in the third person, but he's talking about himself and how he experienced heaven. Uh, this is likely when in Acts it describes how he was stoned outside of Jerusalem, and uh, but yet the, uh, the the believers gather on him and prayed, and he came back to life. He's this is very likely what he's recounting in this passage. But in verse seven, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted, uh, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times. That is an accurately translated word, pleaded. He begged, please, to be delivered from this. Uh, to be delivered three times, uh, plead three times to be delivered that it might depart from him, it should say. And he said to me, Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Okay? In other words, no, I'm not going to heal you. Because this is the work I'm doing in you and through you. My grace is sufficient for you. And my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will not heal you or deliver you from this, this messenger of Satan. We don't know what it was. There are those who claim to have a pretty good idea what it was. I think there's a couple of cases can be made. But we don't actually know. It doesn't matter. What we do know for sure is that it was a messenger of Satan buffeting him. He was being, he was under heavy enough spiritual attack that he pleaded with the Lord to deliver him from said spiritual attack, and Jesus said no. And he explained why. Because my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, my grace will carry you while you endure this trial, and it's to the end that my strength might be made perfect in your weakness, right? And now he doesn't say your weakness, but just in weakness. This would be true of anybody who's enduring a difficult trial, a difficult struggle, uh, a trial, uh, oppression, all these kinds of things. If God chooses, and I know this sounds this sounds blasphemous to those who hold that that this other view, but if God chooses not to heal us, this tells us there's a good reason as to why. At, at the very least, we know we're learning that His grace is sufficient, and that His strength is made perfect in weakness. But the larger point I would make in our context for our discussion today is that it is true that sometimes God chooses not to heal. Now, notice what Paul's response to this is. The response of the, you know, New Apostolic Reformation or the response of those who believe that God always heals would be, well, then Paul needs to pray harder and keep after it and pray, keep, please keep praying. You know, does not a father know to give good to his own children? If you were evil, you know, doesn't God know to give good? No. And by the way, good is a term that is subject to who's doing it in this case. We might say good means healing. God might say good is that you learn to trust in my grace while you're enduring your sufferings. Good might be that uh, my prayer gets answered right now. Good from God's perspective might be that you need to endure this for the rest of your life because this is what I'm using your life for. If I don't think that's good, then the problem is my definition of good. I need to alter my definition of good to line up with his. If I ask anything in his name, what does that mean? Anything that he would ask for, anything that lines up with his personality, his will, uh, and such. That's again why John said that when we, if we ask anything according to his will, we know we have that which we ask for. Because our end goal is his will to be fulfilled. 
Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, not my will, but yours be done. More on that in just a second. What is Paul's response to this? Again, Acts chapter, second uh, Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul then says in response, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I will, as if to further emphasize the point, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, this is another passage that you should put a bookmark in, that you should underline verses 7 through 10. You should memorize this passage. You should ask God to help. I want to say you. We should ask God to help us live according to this passage, to understand his sovereignty in this passage, to recognize his approach to healing and even the definition of good. His purposes are good. I may not know what the right thing is. I feel like I do because I don't want to suffer. I don't want to need to be healed in some way. I want to be healed. But God may say no because he has a higher purpose in mind. This is why I'll I'll quote Isaiah again, Isaiah 55, the idea that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. There is always, I'd say always, not every passage, but there is so often the emphasizing of the loftier ways and, and, and thoughts of God. The fact that he does things on a level that accomplishes purposes and fits into the overall scheme of everything he's doing as the sovereign over every atom in the universe, every nanoparticle in the universe, everything within space, time, and outside of it. He is the Lord of and the creator of. And so he is working all of these things together for our good, but even more importantly, for his glory, for his purposes, to achieve the end result that he would have. And so we cannot take so simplistic an approach to healing as to say that God always heals. And if he doesn't, you must not have enough faith or just maybe come short of giving that answer, but still live with the belief that he always heals everybody. That's just not true. That is just an unscriptural concept. And God has the right to define his thinking and his doing in this regard. We are not being overtly spiritual when we think otherwise. Matter of fact, here's where I want to connect what is, I think, going to probably be about my last main point on this. Um, and that now speaks to the idea of something else that Bill Johnson has said that I um, am staggered by. Uh, well, two things. Again, in, reg- in regard to healing, he said, I'll never create a, uh, a, a theology that allows for sickness. Again, then you and Paul are at odds. You clearly don't have a biblical mindset. You clearly have not read or you've somehow misinterpreted wildly this passage from Paul. But another thing that he said was that he, that he would, we ought not pray, not my will, but yours be done. We shouldn't pray that because that's a prayer of defeat. Now that pat, that may sound familiar to you. You may have heard somebody else pray that, not my will, but yours be done. Uh, it was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was actually, by the way, again, something he told us to pray in, in the Lord, in the, in the prayer that he gave his disciples, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But in, in the garden, Jesus himself prayed that. Not my will, but yours be done. He did that twice. He said, if it be your will, let this cup pass by me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
he didn't want to take the cup in his humanity. But the cup was necessary. The cup was God's will. Matter of fact, there's an interesting passage here in uh, Acts chapter 4. I'll just read a little bit of it here. In, um, starting in verse 24, this is after some of the disciples had been arrested and, and they were now going to pray for boldness. Verse 24, so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. And then they go on to pray for boldness to preach the word and that signs and wonders be done. And God shook the place uh, in confirmation of his uh, presence among them. Notice he didn't just they didn't just pray for healings and signs and wonders, whatever. They prayed for boldness to preach the word. Okay. That if we're going to pray for for signs and miracles, we should also be praying for boldness to preach the word. Um, but what happened to Jesus was the will of God, the Father. Jesus came into the world for that purpose ultimately, and so to think that God cannot bring a good purpose about through suffering or through not answering a prayer uh, the way we want Him to is just unbiblical. And if it's unbiblical, it's unhealthy. And so let me advise you that if you are wrapped up in, in, um, in a camp that holds these views, you should depart from it. Um, you should go find a church that doesn't just carefully curate the passages that they read in order to present a particular perspective, but rather instead to go to a church that will teach you the whole counsel of God. If you remember, that's exactly what Paul told the Ephesian elders. He said, I have not shunned to declare to you the entire, the whole counsel of God. He warned them day and night with tears. He said, look, ravenous wolves will rise up from among you, not sparing the flock. And so his remedy for that was to teach them what God had to say so they might be protected and they might be safe and they might be able to perpetuate healthy sheep. So if you, if you are... If you personally are of this belief, can I encourage you to open your Bible and consider how you would reconcile these passages, like some of the ones we looked at today, and take a look at all of the passages that have to do with this. And you'll realize that there is a far more balanced approach that relies much more and puts really rests sovereignty in the hands of God, his capacity to do what he will do, rather than him having to do things as I would see fit. Um, that puts me in the driver's seat. When I think that God has to answer my prayers my way, that means that I know better than God. This, this is actually, um, this is actually another Bill Johnsonism that I actually just heard yesterday when I was kind of reading through some things and listening through some things. Um, he, and he was actually talking about the Lord's Prayer in, in Matthew chapter six, and he talked about the idea of repetition prayer. Uh, and, and prayers that aren't repetitions. And, and in the midst of that conversation, he talked about certain prayers that don't persuade God. Like you pray this way, you're not going to persuade God. Like the implication would be you should pray the other way, so you will persuade God. This is kind of common thinking in that camp. The idea that, you know, can we change God's mind? You know, this may be what's going on right now when we say, well, that's the will of God. Well, maybe, maybe this is, we should do, I should be healed, you know, and I want to pray. And since God heals everybody, I should be healed. Um, 
if if we in our prayers, like for in that example, for you know, I, just, I pray and plead and I knock, I keep knocking, you know, I, I I I seek and I find, I, I just intensely, fervently go after these things. Um, the implication in that thinking is that God will do that because I'm asking for it. I'm being persistent. Um, if if I could change God's mind about what He thought was best for me. That would be about the most frightening thing that you could ever imagine. Can you imagine if you actually could change God's mind? What would that imply? That would either imply that God didn't know that this would be a better route to take. Thank God you're here to tell him because, you know, he didn't apparently recognize that this is the better thing to do. Um, either he didn't recognize it and you need to help him out with that or He's holding out on you for not doing the the good thing in the first place. You know, that sounds suspiciously like the lie in the garden. Did God really say? It's kind of holding out on you. It's like, you think this is good. Well, God's not telling you the truth. You should go do that. Well, if, if God is holding back on me, that changes my perception of him too, right? If I could change God's mind, that means that I either know more than he does or he's actually willing to change what is good and right and perfect on my whims. Um, you, you don't change God's mind. You know, prayer doesn't change God's mind. Prayer aligns me with his mind. Prayer doesn't get my will done in heaven. Prayer is intended to get God's will done on earth. Can you persuade God? If you can, I don't want to be around you when you get your way. I hope, I hope I, I hope I can't, let me put it this way. I hope that I can't persuade him. Um, he knows what I need and he knows what's best for me. And so I don't know either of those things. So if God does what I want when I don't know what's going on, he's willing to change what he's going to do when he does know what's going on. There's something wrong with that. That's wrong, like from every direction. So people will say, well, you know, if you're not healed, you know, you, you should, you should pray in faith that you be healed and, and, and faith will heal and that kind of thing. And if he doesn't, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pray in ways that don't, you know, demonstrate real faith and I'm, I'm believing God's gonna heal and all the stuff that goes into that. God, God must heal because he always heals. Um, or I'm not gonna pray not, not my will but yours be done because that's a prayer of defeat and all that kind of thing. All of these ideas, they ruminate in my mind and they drive me crazy, I'll be honest with you. But to, to, to not pray, not my will but yours be done, may sound spiritual. I'm not going to pray a prayer of defeat, but it's actually about the most unspiritual thing. Because what you're saying is, if I'm not willing to submit to your will instead of mine, then I don't actually believe your will is better than mine. I don't believe you. That is by definition unfaithfulness. That is lacking faith. Faith is not faith in faith. It's faith in God. God knows what's best. God does what's best. God does what's right all the time. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Yes. And the answer to that question is always yes. So if you believe that you shouldn't pray for his will to be done, you're not exercising faith. You're demonstrating that you don't have faith. 
Uh, if you had faith, you would trust that God's will is the right will and that you'd want it to be done on earth as it is in heaven. You wouldn't be pushing yours. You'd be inviting his. You would be like Paul. Then, Lord, I will rejoice in my infirmities and in my difficulties and my persecutions and my needs, all these things, because when I am weak, then I'm really strong. That's a good passage to meditate on and to chew the cut over and to, to, to think about deeply and to consider. So, um, well, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up there. I've been going for quite a while here now. This actually wasn't not just short. It was actually quite long. So I'm going to stop there. But I would invite you that if you're involved in anything having to do with Bethel, if you're involved in um, freedom prayer, if you're involved in any of these movements that sort of offer a pseudo-spirituality, but in fact go pretty flatly against what the scriptures actually teach, I would encourage you to find another place to go to church. I would infi- I would advise you, counsel you, I would really plead with you for your own spiritual well-being, that you not continue in these paths, that you not continue down that road. Um, if you want to investigate the, investigate those things further, I will, again, include some links. You can look up these things. You can find the books. You can watch the teachings. You can listen to them. And you can see for yourself what's being taught here and what's being said. But let me encourage you to do so with an open Bible. Like compare what they're saying with what the Word says and think through it systematically. Not just find a verse or two that seems to sort of proof text it, but build your theology on what the Word says and then test those things that come from outside and see if they line up. That is your responsibility as a believer and it's mine too. Uh, and so let me leave you with that. And I appreciate you watching and hanging in there with me if you've lasted this long. Uh, I apologize if I stepped on your toes. Hopefully, hopefully... Uh, I was fair and, 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 um, and, uh, and it was a good hurt, you know, um, at the end of the day, uh, the scriptures are given to us that we might know all that we need to know about faith and practice. And so, uh, if you want to grow healthy in the Lord, the word of God is the place to go for it. And that's, um, and you also want to judge anything else that would claim to provide that for you. You want to compare that with scripture and see if in fact it's legit or not. So let me leave that with you. And Father, we thank you for giving us your word that we can test these things, that we can consider what you've had to say against what others might have to say. Help us not to be gullible. Help us not to just go after something because it seems like it works when in fact it may not line up with what your word has to say about the same subject. Uh, we do pray that we wouldn't look for quick fixes for spirituality, but rather dig in for the long haul and just allow you to lead us down the paths that you do that we might grow as you would have us grow. Uh, we want to be like Paul and celebrate uh, the fact that you're working in us, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, because you are working out uh, things within us, teaching us to, to lean on your grace and to, to find that to be sufficient and to, to relish in our weakness, because then we're truly strong. Uh, one of the great dichotomies in the Christian faith that is that is true. And so help us to walk in these ways. Help us to fall in love with you personally, to seek after you, and not to just give in to various methodologies, again, because they seem to work, but rather to cultivate our relationship with you, both in the word and in prayer. That, Father, we, like the first century believers, would engage in these two ways and also in our fellowship together and our breaking bread together. Father, we just want to have a whole Christian life, and we want to be part of a fellowship of believers where we can grow together healthy as the Bible defines it. So thank you, Lord, for that. We praise you and bless you and ask you to help us in these things in Jesus' name. Well, if you have any questions or thoughts or anything, you can share them in the comments section on our YouTube channel. You can also email me at info at calvarychapelfranklin.com. I'll be glad to uh, do my best to respond to emails and comments and that kind of thing. Uh, thank you for the question. I'm glad to address this, and I hope I hope you found it helpful. So God bless you, and the Lord bless you 
and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace forever. Amen.